Coming up on Golf Today, quite the reward for Wyndham Clark, who gets win number one at the Wells Fargo. How did a change in attitude lead to a change in results? And what is next? And the 1977 PGA champ Lanny Watkins stops by for a past champ chat. Lanny also won the Byron Nelson 50 years ago and is never afraid to speak his mind on the meaty topics in the game. And construction on a new golf destination set to begin near Denver this summer. We'll speak with the developer Michael Kaiser and find out what is in store for Colorado, giving you a Rocky Mountain High on Golf Today. Golf Today. Golf Today on a Monday. Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch. Golf Week Magazine. Got a first-time winner on the PGA Tour in Wyndham Clark. We're about to speak to a 21-time PGA Tour winner in Lanny Watkins. He's never dull. No, and as you mentioned, 50 years ago he won the Byron Nelson Classic, which is on this week, and it's mm. a sign of how long Lanny's been around. We're going to talk to him about the PGA Championship next week, which he also won, 1977, and it's at Oak Hill where Lanny, I'm looking forward to asking him about this, he captained the losing Ooh. United States Ryder Cup team in 28 years ago, and I don't think the pain of that one has quite gone away Don't yet. make him angry. You're not going to like him when he's angry. Maybe we will like him when he's well, angry. He's as fearless I, with his clubs he is, as he is with his opinions. I love his wedges, by the way. I want to ask him about his wedge game. You want to talk about someone who hits some of those clutch wedges of all time, hit a, a great wedge to get into that playoff at the, at the uh, PGA Championship at Pebble in 77, of course, in 83 at the Ryder Cup as well. Yeah, competitors don't come much feistier than Lanny Watkins. Even now at 73, still feisty. No doubt. There was some great wedge play on Sunday, by the way, at the Wells Fargo Championship. Time now for taking a look at Sunday best. Yeah, never stress. I like that song a lot. You might remember it from a couple of years ago. This is Xander Schauffele. This is for birdie at three. From nine feet. And this would tie him to the lead at 15 under. People are thinking, well, maybe uh, the Olympic gold medalist is about to make his move. Par 5, 7th, this long lag for Eagle. Almost from a different time zone, and it takes its pretty time getting there, Damon. Huge greens at Quail Hollow. He does nestle this one up to four feet. He would make that for birdie. That gave him a one-stroke lead over Wyndham Clark at 16 under. It caught me crazy. I thought Xander's going to take it over right there and kind of run away in high, Wyndham Clark had other ideas. This is the 10th hole. I thought this was a huge up and down here. A real touch of class here. Gets that out to five feet, and he made that. And at 17 under par at the time, that gave him a two-stroke lead. Once extended here now, this is the 12th hole for about 19 feet for birdie. And the lead is four. Looking like he's been doing it for years, Eamon. I love this. I love his camera view, by the way. This was that drivable par 4 14th he laid back to a comfortable distance you mentioned Lanny Watkins and his wedges <laughs> that's pretty close to Lanny of old yeah sticking to a few feet makes that to get to a four shot lead then on 15 also laid up here for for birdie makes that one the lead is four at 20 under yeah the Oregon Duck able to exhale to get that long-awaited first win on the PJ Tour, and he, he took it deep. A lot of questions about what golf course was he playing. 19 under. It's a final round of 68. It's the lowest 72-hole score in Wells Fargo Championship history. 265 as he picks up win number one on the PGA Tour. And time now for the best bites from Sunday. I think in the past I 
sometimes shied away maybe from those pressure moments because I would get too amped up. Um, that's one of the hardest things in golf is you have all these emotions and you're so excited out there and you have to then have touch and hit something with such, you know, so much toss, touch and pace. And, um, and so in the past, I feel like I struggled with that. And so today, like you said, I was excited. I was, when he made putts, I was like, yeah, all right, now I got to do it. And, um, you know, I just think Xander and I fed off each other really well Saturday and Sunday. Um, you know, he played amazing. And I think a lot of how good I played was because he was putting pressure on me. And so I just felt like, I, all right, I can't just coast in and make a bunch of pars. I got to make birdies. So, um, yeah, I really like how I handled pressure. To be honest, when I lost in, um, in, where were we, in the Dominican this year, um, I was beginning to think that maybe I'll never win. I know that sounds crazy because I've only been on here five years, but I've had a lot of chances to where I was within two or three shots, um, either going into the back nine or starting on a Sunday. And I always seemed to fall short, and not only that, but seem like I fell back in positions. And there was multiple texts and calls and times when I was so frustrated with people in my camp where I didn't think I'd ever win. And I was like, let's just stop talking about it because I don't want to, uh, I didn't want to think about it. I said, maybe that's just not in the cards for me. Um, so being in the position this time, I was like, well, you know, we, we've done everything. We know what not to do. And so um, I really learned from those experiences. And I felt like today, um, you know, when I didn't have the best start early on, I just told myself to relax. It's I have a lot more holes. You can't win the tournament after the first few holes and on a Sunday. So, you know, little things where in the past I would have gotten fast and quick and, and already my mind's going forward. And, um, and so I stayed really patient and present. And I think that's what kind of calmed me down. And then ultimately, when I got into a groove, um, helped me propel to make the birdies and, and win this tournament. My mom passed away when I was 19. And um, I'd say when I was about 20, 21, I really contemplated quitting golf. I was at Oklahoma State. And I was playing terribly. There was many times when I stormed off the golf course um, in qualifying or in tournaments and just drove as fast as I could and I didn't know where I was going and um, you know and I just just the pressure of golf and then not having my mom there and someone that I could call was really tough for me um, and then professionally I've, I've had multiple moments like that where you just you you know you miss multiple cuts in the row or you feel like your game is good and you're not getting much out of it and you just contemplate doing it so um, you know Max Homa has a great quote of every good every golfer's one shot away from thinking they can win the Masters or one shot away from quitting golf. And it really is a great quote because that's the truth. And um, I'm, I'm glad I stuck, stuck out and, and I'm here now. So, What an eclectic, talented list of first-time winners at the Wells Fargo. Anthony Kim, that shooting star, burned bright, but burned hot, burned fast. Rory McIlroy, one of the best ever to hold golf clubs. Ricky Fowler beat Rory McIlroy in DA points in a playoff. And, 2012, Derek that bolt from the blue in 2013. Max Homa, one of the best players of this modern era, also very cerebral, as is Wyndham Clark. Eamon, I thought that was a fascinating press conference that he held on Sunday evening. What did you take away from Wyndham Clark's win? It's got to be the mental game, right? When you hear a guy who was just a few months away from winning 
on the PGA Tour back in the Dominican Republic saying that he didn't think winning was on the cards for him. Yeah. It seems a quite a staggering admission for it is. that level. And for someone who's gone through a lot in his life and talked about, you know, 10 years ago losing his mom, who was 55 years of age, Lisa, to breast cancer and having to deal with that, transferring out of Oklahoma State and, and going to Oregon and kind of starting fresh, needing to start over, have a new scenery. And he played wonderfully at Oregon, won a Pac-12 individual title there, was the player of the year the Pac-12, was a Hogan finalist, was a Nicholas semifinalist, and he was very tough on himself uh, when he first turned professional, not quite living up to those expectations that he had built in his college career, and then really having a talking to from his team around him and saying, you have to stop being so tough on yourself, and he kind of took a different mental Outlook, he found some books to read. The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, The Energy Bus by John Gordon. And we seem to be living in this era of players that are, are being introspective. Lilia Vu, who we spoke to, talked about some of the books that she read when she was in a very low patch in her career. And I think Wyndham Clark, in many ways, is cut from a similar cloth. And it was interesting to hear him after that round yesterday, Damon, talk about the idea of realizing that he didn't have to be perfect when he put himself into position, which he has done consistently over the years but you also have to realize I suppose at a certain point that you can't expect your opponents to be perfect mm. all the time either and Xander Shoffley by his standards were certainly short of perfect yesterday had a few loose shots by by Xander's standards and that I think illustrated the comfort that we see out of Wyndham Clark in in yesterday's uh, performance because he was first in the field in strokes gained approach Mm. this week. He was third in putting. That's a combination that's probably going to win on any golf course, but it also illustrates the comfort level that he had in the position in coming into the greens and on the greens, that he wasn't as fearful or tentative as he said he had been repeatedly in the past. And he did reference the idea of having put himself within two, three strokes of the lead in years past for quite a number of occasions and falling back and getting away from it. And if you look at his final round scoring average on the PGA Tour, it's quite revealing here. He's now currently 57th on tour and final round scoring average, middle of the pack, but it suggests a great deal more comfort than when you look at those previous few years there when he was down as low as tied for 170th in final round scoring average, which, you know, you're, you're going to spend a lot of money yeah. on Sundays on the PGA Tour when you do that. And I think what you're going to see now with the comfort is more consistency because he's only actually made nine top 10 finishes mm. on the PGA Tour in the last four years. That's how much he's playing himself out of it on the weekend. He's missed 21 or I think it's 27 missed cuts in that same time period. But when you look at him now in his last 19 starts, he's got nine top 25 finishes, six top 10s and a win. That's a guy who is growing more comfortable in his skin out there, particularly on Sunday afternoons. And he's doing it in the modern way. He is ninth in driving distance this season. You know who's 10th? John Rahm. So he hits the ball. If you're ahead of John Rahm in category, what does that you're tell doing you? pretty good. 15th in strokes gained total as well. So it's, you know, we always kind of want to project and say, where is this career going to go? We, we have no idea. But when you look at the skill set that he has, it does seem like a very confident presentation. And it's not even just the skill set. I suppose it's your own belief in that skill set when it matters most. Mm. And that was what was most interesting about those last nine holes yesterday. Mm. He made clutch putt after clutch putt all day long. He did not put himself in a position 
to throw it away yeah. yesterday. And it could have happened easily. He opens with a bogey. Mm -hmm. The wheels could have started to wobble pretty quickly, but they didn't wobble. And when we talk about that final round scoring average earlier, he shot 68 yesterday. Denny McCarthy mm. was the only man in the field who beat Wyndham Clark yesterday. Denny shot 66. If you're a guy who's been shaky on Sunday and only one guy in the field is beating you on Sunday when you've got a two-stroke lead starting yeah. the day, that's a guy who's kind of knows his value out there now. Well, the guy who finished right behind Wyndham Clark, of course, Xander Schauffele. He's had a fantastic 2022-2023 season, the most top tens on tour this season. There's Xander Schauffele, right, with John Rahm and Scotty Scheffler. Difference, of course, John Rahm and Scotty Scheffler have broken through for victory this season. Xander Schauffele has yet to do so, though he's on a run, Eamon, of five consecutive top ten finishes on the PGA Tour. What do you take away from from his week? Do you think he's a little bit disappointed? I'm guessing he would be. I mean, you, you can't be that disappointed in the sense that you went up against a guy who played well. Sure. Sander didn't play badly. He just didn't play well enough. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the eight top tens this season. Xander has 11 top 10 finishes since his last victory, which was the Genesis Scottish Open. He won back-to-back -back tournaments, the Travellers Championship and the Genesis last summer. And that was part of a three-win year for Xander. Mm. You expect a guy with his talent, who's now number five in the world, to win more often than he does. He puts himself in position, it seems like, week after week after week. He just doesn't leave with that many trophies. And at a certain mm. point, you start to wonder, is is that corrosive to his, his confidence? He doesn't give that impression now mm. at all. It could become such down the road. You're obviously, you're not going to take every opportunity that's out there to win, but there is a lingering sense that Xander doesn't take enough of them. Yeah, he seemed clear-eyed at the end of Sunday, saying that he felt like he should have put more pressure, that he should have been there in the frame a little bit longer than he was. When he took the lead on the front nine, you know, call me crazy, I was among those who thought that this was Xander Shoffley's tournament uh, to lose considering his resume as a seven-time winner on the PGA Tour as an Olympic gold medalist compared to Wyndham Clark despite how well Wyndham had been playing this season. I thought that it was an opportunity for Xander to kind of lean into Wyndham a little bit, clear his throat a little bit, use the, 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 the loudness of his voice as a top five player in the game. And you know what, Eamon, I believe he feels the same. But he, you could also argue he did lean in at a certain point when he Wyndham wobbled early, Xander made a birdie on three. He got the lead yes. at a certain point. The problem is holding on to the lead, especially against a guy who's clearly playing well and playing with confidence and yeah. finally playing with some degree of belief. Xander probably went into yesterday thinking that a guy who hasn't won, who's proven himself somewhat wobbly on Sunday, mm. that might not actually deliver the kind of performance that Wyndham Clark did. Mm. So I don't think Xander can be terribly disappointed in the sense that he didn't play poorly. He just went up against a guy who just wasn't giving it away. Yeah, Wyndham Clark played like a 15-year veteran on the PGA Tour and gained that first all-important victory at Quail Hollow. Folks, let's take a look now at the Comcast Business Tour Top 10 because with his win on Sunday, Clark collects 500 points and moves from number 36 to number 5 in the standings. All those guys always smiling. The reason this is so important, since 2009, every player who finished in the Comcast Business Tour Top 10 has made it to the Tour Championship at Eastlake. So if players finish in the Top 10, odds are they're going to make it to the Tour Championship. Well, the Wells Fargo was a home game for our next guest. Taylor Zarzar broadcasts his show, The Starter, on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio from Charlotte. He was out there all week, and he's here right after the break. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Golf Central Update, brought to you by Callaway Golf. On Sunday, Wyndham Clark earned his first PGA Tour title in his 134th start. He becomes the sixth player to make the Wells Fargo Championship as maiden tour title and the eighth first-time winner on tour this season. And what he earns with that trophy is pretty impressive. $3.6 million, a significant upgrade on his previous biggest paycheck of $485,000, qualifies him for the PGA Championship and the Open Championship, an exemption on the PGA Tour through the 2025 season, and a spot in next year's Century Tournament of Champions, Players' Championship, and, of course, the Masters. And we're pleased to be joined now by Taylor Zarzars, the host of Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. Lives in Charlotte. He was out there all week. And my first question, Taylor, is was the golf course playing unusually easy or was Wyndham Clark that good? Because we don't see guys going this deep under par at Quail Hollow very often. Yeah, great point. And I, I don't think it was. I don't think any of us expected 19 under, somebody to be 20 under par going into the last hole. I think that we thought somewhere between 10 and 15 under par would win, which is what traditionally the winning score is right around. And, you know, most of the field was obviously around that number or worse than that. But Xander Shoffley at 15 under par, and then you had Wyndham Clark at 19 under. Those guys were just playing their own game, especially Clark. And I think the key is, is when you hit it past 330 on any golf course, but especially this one, and you put wedge in your hand, then all of a sudden you give yourself a huge advantage. We've seen what Rory McIlroy has done here three times, and clearly Wyndham was feeling good with not only the big stick, but also with his short game all week. And uh, it is incredibly impressive what he was able to do. The rough was not as high, Eamon, as it has been sometimes in the past. It's just about two and a half inches. I would think maybe next year you might see it, see it grown to three and a half inches. And I would imagine that Kerry Haig, who runs the PGA of America, was paying close attention. And we might have a challenging PGA championship here in two years. Taylor, what about the, the mental and emotional journey that Wyndham Clark has been on from losing his mom a decade ago to having success at Oregon and turning pro and having to wait for success and kind of changing his mental approach to the professional game? Yeah, I, I, Damon, that's the thing I think all of us were fascinated by these last few days to see if he could actually come through after the 36 and 54 hole leads and be able to close the deal. He looked so nervous yesterday morning. It looked like it was all over his mind to win for the first time on the PGA Tour. But he had this calm about him as the round continued. And I think all that mental work that you just referenced that he's been doing in 2023 clearly has paid off. Uh, I'll give a shout out to my friend Drew Stoltz, a guy that I know you both know well that works for SiriusXM, PGA Tour Radio. He's one of uh, Wyndham's very best friends. He's caddied for him on the PGA Tour. He's one of a few people. John Ellis, his current caddy, is another that has been in Wyndham's corner and said, if you believed in yourself one-tenth as much as we do, you're going to be a multiple winner on the PGA Tour. And now here we are, as you guys referenced, it's not just one great victory. He's been playing well throughout 2023. And now he's 11th in the Ryder Cup standings. I wouldn't be surprised if he's joining the three of us in Italy in late September. Taylor, speaking of mindsets and headspaces, there was a lot of chatter around Rory McIlroy at the start of the week. He started off pretty well on Thursday on his birthday, and after that kind of hit neutral or reverse, were you surprised by how little we saw out of him this week? Yeah, because his form obviously is always so good. This is a golf course that he loves. He loves the membership here. He's so comfortable. He celebrates his birthday here each year. 
But I think Eamon right now, he's trying to find something to look forward to. He's often talked about how he he always needs a, something to strive towards. And clearly, that was the Masters going into uh, the middle of April. And after the heartbreak and disappointment of that performance and sitting out at Harbortown, taking the $3 million penalty, I think now he's trying to have a hard reset and figure out exactly what it is that he is motivated towards winning. He's got plenty of FedEx Cups. It's not that he's going to turn down winning another one, but I think he wants something else uh, to put on his resume other than winning a green jacket. Some other major championships, I think, is something that would really help Rory if he's ever going to contend and win a green jacket. And I think he's going through that mental reset right now. I think that's why we saw some rust from him here in Charlotte over the course of those four days. But I will tell you, Eamon, I spent some time with him Tuesday night and then Wednesday during his practice round. He's as chipper and as approachable as he's ever been. He says he's not going to be as vocal about this strife that the PGA Tour has had with Live Golf, the friction in the game. He's not going to be the ambassador that he's been the last couple of years, and he's not going to be as outspoken as he's been. But as you guys know, he's so thoughtful. He's so charming. I think it's going to be hard for him to figure out exactly what this new Rory McIlroy looks like. Well, Jordan Spieth is the next guy with a chance to complete the career Grand Slam at the PGA Championship, which is next week. Amazing. It's right around the corner. What are some storylines you're looking forward to in Rochester? I think that's the, the biggest one, Damon. I'm a little surprised at how poorly he played here this past Friday and missing the cut by a mile. But obviously, he's teeing it up this week and then again next week at Rochester. To me, that's at the top of the list of storylines. I think that another is Brooks Kepka coming so close to winning the Masters and having the lead sleeping on it at least on Saturday night. Uh, if Would Kepka or another player that's no longer on the PGA Tour have a chance to win in Rochester? Those would be some storylines that would be most interesting to me. And, the and then the other thing is, are we going to be packing ski gear? Uh, we can get lucky there, and it could be 70-plus degrees, but it also could be in the 40s, and we could be bundled up. So I think those are the things I'm most interested in. That's what we call summer in, where I come from, Taylor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just to tie a bow on Quail Hollow here, you've been around this event a long time and around the club a long time. Is this an event that needs designated status to be successful? Because obviously Phoenix is one of those events that had it this year. You could argue it's going to be successful one way or the other. You could probably make the same argument about this tournament as well. You guys did a terrific interview with the president of the club, Johnny Harris, last week. And he was also on, on my show. And listening to the interview you guys did and his appearance on my show, I have come to the conclusion that Johnny would love to continue to have a tournament each year that there isn't a major championship or a President's Cup here in Charlotte, but with the caveat that it would be a designated event. I don't see the club or the, the sponsor of the tournament moving forward, which of course will be Wells Fargo again in 2024, wanting anything less than a designated tournament. They certainly would love Scotty Scheffler, John Rahm, and a few others to also be here for a designated event. But this, even though it was a four-shot win and we didn't have drama around the green mile uh, this week, it felt big. It felt bigger than a typical Wells Fargo championship feels. And looking at the condition of the golf course, I think most players felt like this was a little bit bigger than a run-of-the-mill PGA Tour event. And I think that's what the people in Charlotte want, led by Johnny and John O'Hara. So I would expect that if they're going to have a regular tournament each year, it would be a designated event moving forward. And the crowds came out in Charlotte, as they so Ooh. often do. Taylor, thanks for the time, and enjoy that sunshine, buddy. You got it, my friend. See you next week.
All right, Taylor Zarzer, Sirius XM Radio. Speaking of the designated events, how about the winners that we've seen this season? Almost all chalk, yes, but also a couple of coming out parties, you might say. Kurt Kitayama ranked 46 at the time. Wyndham Clark ranked 80th at the time of his victory yesterday in the Queen City. And kind of on golf today, it's time for a past champ chat with a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame. Lanny Watkins won the 77 PGA, the 73 Byron Nelson to talk the state of the game. Coming up next on Golf Today. We're back on Golf Today. Last May, Justin Thomas won the PGA Championship, shooting 67 in the final round at Southern Hills to come from seven strokes back after 54 holes to win in a playoff over Will Zalatori. His performance tied John Mahaffey in 1978 for the biggest comeback to win the PGA. It marked Thomas's second career major title. And the countdown is on to his defence. The 2023 PGA Championship heads to Oak Hill Country Club, Rochester, New York, next week. We've got you covered with Live From beginning Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Aim, let's flash back to the 1977 PGA Championship at Pebble Beach Disco was King. Lanny Watkins defeated Gene Littler in a sudden death playoff to claim his lone major title. Got it done on the third playoff hole. And the bio is a really good one. Blackjack 21, PGA Tour wins, PGA Championship, and the Nelson Hall of Fame inductee in 2009. Eight times a Ryder Cup player and the captain at Oak Hill for the U.S. in 1995. Time now for a past champ chat with the World Golf Hall of Fame member, Lanny Watkins. Lanny, always great to spend some time with you. I read this story that before the 77 playoff at the PGA, you thought it might be a Monday playoff and not a Sunday playoff, and you actually had a beer before the playoff. What do you remember? Well, it was. Yeah, I had no idea it was a, a sudden death playoff and didn't find out until I was actually going to the clubhouse. I thought ostensibly to go – uh, to the press room and chat, and a buddy of mine, Ed Sneed, who I had played practice rounds with, that actually the, all three practice days I played with Ed and and Tom Weisskopf and Arnold Palmer in practice uh, our little money games. But uh, Ed gave me a beer. I'm halfway through it, and the guy said, "Hey, by the way, you're on the first tee." I went, "Whoa!" So I gave a beer back to Ed. I didn't didn't finish it, but I think I could have probably used it at that point in time. <laughs> Well, Lanny, you entered that final round back at Pebble Beach in 77, six off Gene Littler's lead. He, he led Jack Nicholas by four. You posted a number, then waited in the clubhouse having a beer. How much do you remember of the playoff? Because that was the first sudden death playoff in stroke play major history. Yeah, I remember a lot. I mean, basically standing there by 18 to see what was going to happen. I remember Jack had a 15-footer at 18 to tie me. And I'm still thinking playoff Monday, and I'm not really pulling for Jack. So I'm thinking, you know, if I have to play Jack in a playoff on Monday here at Pebble Beach where he's won two majors, that's probably not going to go really well for old Lanny boy. And uh, I, I can't say I was pulling for Jack. Glad to see him miss it. Uh, then actually I, I watched Littler uh, make his part. Then I headed up to the clubhouse thinking press room and ended up going to the first tee is where we had the playoff. The, the one thing that stands out that I remember is they had already taken all the gallery ropes down. So there are about 10, 15,000 people following just the two of us with no gallery ropes, completely out of control uh, for all three holes. It, it was chaos. And the PGA did a pretty good job of managing it given the circumstances. And uh, it was pretty wild. I mean, going, you know, we went one, two, three, and uh, that's, that's where we went. 
You made that putt on the third extra hole and you jumped in the air. Lanny, how did winning a major championship change your life? Um, in a lot of ways, completely. I'd had a great start to my career and had some injuries and some surgeries. Uh, and at the time I won the PJ, I was actually a non-exempt player. I had a good enough year that I was going to be in the top 60 and be exempt going into 78. But all of a sudden, uh, I won the PGA. I've got a 10-year exemption. That was what it was back then. Uh, two weeks later, I won the World Series of Golf. That's another 10-year exemption. And then in 79, I won the Players' Championship, which was another 10-year exemption. So I was kind of set up, you know, with those wins. But it really changed my career. You know, when we went to the first tee, uh, we were told by the president of PGA uh, that, you know, which Don Padgett, hey, whichever one of you guys wins between me and Lit, we were going to be on the 77 Ryder Cup team uh, and knock Al Guyberger off the team. So uh, that was exciting, but it was kind of not at the forefront of our minds when we're going out for the PGA championship. Lanley, the PGA moved away from that sudden death format for playoffs back in 1996, and now the Masters is the only major championship that uses sudden death. Which format do you prefer? Do you like to see two, three, four holes or sudden death? Well, you know, Eamon, I probably would prefer more. Uh, not only did I win one in sudden death, I lost one in sudden death in 87 to Larry Nelson, and it was over a little too quickly for my taste. Uh, Honestly, I would have preferred, since it's a major championship, I know they want to finish it on Sunday, but I would still, as a player, opt for 18 holes on Monday. I would love to have 18 holes uh, to contest that uh, and, and see if I could get a major championship one. If not, probably a three- or four-hole playoff would be preferable. Lanny, you're one of the best wedge players to ever pick up a club. Uh, you did it uh, at Pebble, hitting it to a few feet. That got you into the playoff, of course, famously in the Ryder Cup in 83. What made you such a fantastic wedge player? Well, back then, I mean, it was all about controlling trajectory and spin. Uh, and, you know, and it's interesting. The ball we played back then was so soft. You did not want sharp grooves on your wedges. I won the U.S. Amateur in 70 and the PGA in 77 with the same 56-degree, 14-degree bounce wedge. So, I mean, we, we didn't change clubs or switch things out. You know, we actually opted for older clubs with worn grooves because the ball was so soft. The last thing you wanted out there was sharp grooves. And I, I think I was always able to control my trajectory. I kind of had an upright swing stayed on top of the ball, and I could control trajectory flight. Uh, and spin pretty well. I think I had a pretty good set of hands when it came to doing what needed to be done. Lanny, the PGA Championship next week goes to Oak Hill. You captained the American team in the Ryder Cup there in 1995 to a painful loss. And we know you're a patriotic guy, Lanny. How long did it take for the sting of that one to go away? Or has it? It hasn't. <laughs> no, it, it was a tough one. My wife and I put two years of our life into that thing, Eamon. And I made, you know... I don't know how many trips to Oak Hill to work with the PGA, who just was a magnificent organization to work with uh, and do the things that we did to try and, you know, not only bring the cup home, but make the experience great for my, for my team members. Uh, and I, did, I actually made two or three trips up there for Bernard Gallagher, who was a dear friend uh, and my opposing captain. I did, I went up and looked at some things, did some things for him. Uh, so it was uh 
um, you know, bittersweet in a lot of ways. I mean, it was an experience of a lifetime and, and an honor that I could never duplicate, I don't think, being Ryder Cup captain. Uh, for me, it was kind of the culmination because Ryder Cup, you know, starting with the team in 77 became such a big part of my career, uh, playing on eight teams. And I look back at all the Hall of Famers I've played with as my partners and the people I've played against. You know, I had some good records against some pretty good players. Uh, most notably, Seve. I was 4-0 against him. I, I rather enjoyed beating up on Seve. <laughs> I'm sure Seve appreciated it too, Lanny. One of the, the topics of discussion during these majors is there are probably at least a dozen guys who play on the Live Golf League will be at Oak Hill next week. There's also an ongoing discussion as to whether or not any of them ought to be chosen to play in Ryder Cup teams. Do you have any issues with Live guys playing either major championship golf or Ryder Cup potentially? Well, if they qualify for the, for the majors, it's kind of like, and particularly the Opens, the U.S. Open and the Open Championship, I, I feel like, you know, that those are open to anyone. So if you qualify for those, you should be in. Uh, as far as the Masters and PGA goes, that's up to those organizations. Uh, they're smarter in those areas than I am. I think it's a very tough call for Augusta having so many uh, champions that are members of LIV. PGA has a few as well. So uh, it, it's an interesting conundrum for those organizations. I think they're handling it the right way, probably. I don't think they should be involved in Ryder Cup teams. Uh, I, I think those are a separate deal in uh, and I really think I, I, I'm looking at a lot of, you know, the bitching going on from especially the, the DP world guys, the guys from Europe. I'm not sure any of those guys were, they're all kind of past their prime. I'm not sure they were going to make the team anyway. So I'm not sure what, what their, their, their complaints are. Landy, you won 21 times. You're a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame with all the talk about money in professional golf over the last year plus. Are you concerned at all just about the general state of the game? No, the game looks really healthy, Eamon. I, I, I don't mind the money because it, when I look at it, you know, we're a major sport, and I look at the money that athletes are making in other sports. I don't think there's anything wrong with golfers making the amounts at the top uh, stars in other sports, football, baseball, uh, et cetera, are making. So I, I think it's bringing us into the modern world. Would I like to have played for some of that money? That would have been very nice. My first winning paycheck on tour was twenty six thousand, uh, not you know three point seven million. So it, it think things have changed. But uh, you know I wouldn't have changed the era I played in. Growing up playing against Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, Lee Trevino. I mean I I even played in the Masters with uh, Jackie Burke and Gene Sarazen. So. I, I don't, I don't think I would have changed the group that I played with. You know, Tom Watson and Kite were contemporaries, same age I am. Uh, we had a great run and a lot of great players, the Johnny Millers and Tom Weisskopf. My gosh, I could just go on and on uh, about the quality of guys and players that I got to compete against. Um, it's something I just I don't think I could ever replace. Lanny, you were also runner-up three times in the PGA Championship, also in a U.S. Open, tied third three times at the Masters. Is there one of those majors that got away from you that keeps you up at night? And how many do you think you should have? Well, probably one or two of the PGAs would, would have been nice. I mean, I think I was close. Raymond pretty much dominated in 82. I had the lead on Trevino in 84 with nine to play. Then, obviously, I lost the playoff to Larry Nelson 87. Uh, I thought I'd won a U.S. Open at Shinnecock in 86. And... Uh, damn Raymond birdied two of the last four holes and got me. 
but I, I thought I had finished one there. But uh, probably the one that stings the most for me when I look back is the 91 Masters that losing one. Uh, I missed way too many short putts. Uh, the last round, particularly, to lose by two. It was uh, very, very frustrating. Made a couple mistakes I would like to have back, but, you know, that's golf. There was an interesting tweet of the weekend from Paul Goidos out on the PGA Tour Champions who said that he's now at a competitive disadvantage because so many players are out there riding carts. Is he? Do you buy it? You know, that, that's an interesting question because he can ride if he wants to. I, you know, I, I am not completely opposed to carts. I think it, you know, we're a, a group of over 50 men playing out there, and I'm obviously out there pretty much every week doing TV. The carts don't offend me. Uh, it's, it's golf as you get older. Some of our venues are very, very difficult to walk. Uh, I think by having the carts, we get to see some players that we wouldn't see otherwise. So I think in, in some ways having the carts is a plus. Uh, maybe they ought to, you know, work on the cart rules somewhat, but, you know, they've been so different ever since I went out there in 2000. They probably changed the cart rules two or three different times. Um, I, I, I really don't have an issue with the carts, and quite honestly, two or three years from now, the carts may enable us to have Tiger Woods on that tour. So I, I think you're going to find carts a big plus if that uh, happens. Yeah, you don't find a 15-time major championship winner every day of the week. Lanny, always appreciate your time and perspective. Thanks so much. No, great being with you guys. Enjoy your show. Take care of yourself. Well, there's only one brand name when it comes to building world-class golf resorts in remote locations. It's Kaiser. Mike built Band and Dunes and his sons Michael and Chris created Sand Valley in central Wisconsin and recently announced another new project in Colorado. Michael will be here next to share more details. Stay with us. Welcome back to Golf Today. Some news you may have heard last month. Michael and Chris Kaiser, the sons of Bandon Dunes developer Mike Kaiser, will begin construction this summer on a new site an hour outside of Denver, Colorado. They purchased more than 2,000 acres from one of the largest rodeo producers, the Surdy family. The new resort on this rumpled Lynxland will be called Rodeo Dunes, and it will be the latest entry in a pretty impressive portfolio for the Kaiser family under the Dream Golf umbrella. Started obviously with Bandon Dunes, Sand Valley in Wisconsin, and then in concert with Ben Cowan-Dur, the Cabot Collection, which started in Nova Scotia, Canada. We're pleased to be joined now by Michael Kaiser. Michael, these photographs of the Rodeo Dunes property look amazing. How did you find that property in the first place? Uh, I found it on Google Earth. If you uh, stare uh, down at Earth from about 100,000 feet, you see three prominent Sandy blowouts, Sterling, Fort Morgan, and, and Ryden. So they're easy to find. Uh, the hard part was convincing our, our now partner to let us build a golf resort in his uh, backyard. That took about four years. What kind of leap of faith does it take to go from Google Earth to actually producing a golf destination? Um, well, it, uh, shortly after seeing it on Google Earth, I downloaded the topo maps from the county website, and the contours looked very interesting. 
the next week I was on site trespassing on the owner's land. I probably shouldn't have been doing that in cowboy country. Uh, so it didn't take uh, really a leap of faith. I went to see it for myself. And uh, within minutes of climbing over the first dune or, or moments, it was clear that uh, this was a very special site. Michael, you've already announced two golf courses, Kerr Crenshaw doing one which requires no explanation at all, Jim Craig's doing the other, a name that's probably not that familiar to a lot of golf fans out there. Explain how great Jim was your choice for the second one. Uh, so Jim has been a part of many uh, wonderful projects over the years. He worked at Bandon Trails and, and Friars Head. I met him when he was building Sand Valley uh, with Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw and developed a close relationship and ultimately a friendship with him on that project. He took the lead on the routing of the sandbox and worked with Bill and Ben on designing and shaping that golf course. So that's how I got to know him. He's been with uh, with that partnership for almost 25 uh, years, and uh, he's beyond capable of building uh, his own golf course, uh, which I learned by witnessing him at Sand Valley, and this this was his time to shine. Well, Michael, you refer to Jim as a savant, so what type of golf course should we expect? Oh, that's a great question. Well, one that is just pure fun. It's very playful. Um, and uh, quite quite di different from Bill and Ben's, which is also fun and, and playful. Uh, but he brings in a quirkiness uh, within his routing uh, and a playfulness that um, might might remind Eamon of uh, some of the golf courses uh, in his home of Ireland and certainly reminded me of some there, but also some of the quirky courses uh, in uh, in Scotland, and and I describe him as a savant because he really sees things uh, that that others don't, and that I certainly don't. But in in working with him at Sand Valley, I've learned to trust to trust him. Uh, and generally, if if he gets excited about something he sees, it it turns out pretty good. You and your brother Chris have obviously got great growth plans at Sand Valley as well. There are more courses being added there. You're doing now Rodeo Dunes. What's the game plan? How far out have you sketched what's possible at Rodeo Dunes, Michael? Well, we're really focusing on, on the first two golf courses uh, when we were uh, doing our due diligence on the land. Part of that is understanding the extent of the interesting uh, contours, and we needed that to know how much water we would need. So we feel that there are six outstanding golf courses on our property now, and we've secured water rights to uh, to build those six golf courses. And we generally follow a rule that we learned from our, our father, which is if we don't think the next golf course has a chance of being the best one yet, we just won't build it. We'll move on to the next site. And we think that each of those six golf courses with uh, with the right architect could be just as good or better than its predecessor. Michael, I'm hearing six golf courses. The next question is, what about lodging? You know, what kind of destination will this be? Is it going to be similar to, to Bandon Dunes, for example? We certainly hope so. Um, we think it, it, it adds a lot to the experience when our guests can stay uh, on the property. Our water right now is only for uh, irrigation. So we're going to come out of the ground pretty quickly with two and, and maybe shortly thereafter with a third before we ever go uh, vertical and with lodging. And we have the luxury of being so close to Denver uh, where we think our guests will enjoy staying for two or three years while we figure out you know, how to 
how to build vertically. And, and once we do that, um, we think in our model is really the sand hills where the lodging will be pulled away from the Gulf a little further. At Sand Valley, our village is right up against the edges of, of our first two golf courses. And we really want you know this experience to just be the rawest form of golf we can imagine with nothing in sight and the lodging set you know over a dune ridge a little bit in its own little you know contained village away from the golf is there one particular lesson michael that you've taken from your dad who obviously built bandon dunes no one knows how to do this better than he does what lesson have you and chris taken from him most into this next generation of the family business well certainly start with a fabulous site right never never sacrifice the golf that for us the golf comes first second and third so the first important ingredient is a site and this is truly an outstanding site uh the second uh ingredient is work with the greatest architects on the planet uh jimmy craig bill core ben crenshaw uh, and and find sand sites like this the, the, that's the primary lesson but it's all predicated on the golf uh experience being first second and third and and having um, an unwavering commitment to building the greatest, funnest golf uh, that we can, and, and everything else is in support of that. Michael, being so close to Denver, you'll be able to pull from sea to shining sea, or from the north and the south. When do you expect to break ground, and when do you expect to open? Yeah, you know, I, we just added our little tagline, America's Links, because th the response to our first wave of press has been somewhat overwhelming, and it's very national. A lot, of, Most of our resorts are regional, and we're seeing people interested from all over the country. Um, we hope to do some pre-construction uh, this summer. We need to get roads out to the remote dunes that you just showed. We need to get power. We're building a water pipeline. So we'll break ground um, on that horizontal infrastructure, we hope, at the end of this summer, and then start seeding the first golf courses early next summer, or, or I should say late next spring. Now, Michael, in previous conversations with you, I know that you spent a lot of time paying attention to work that architects are doing around the world, which is very much what your dad did. David McClay Kid was pretty much unknown until he did Bandon Dunes. Jim Craig, you could make the same argument here with Rodeo Dunes. Are there any other architects out there who you have your eye on who haven't perhaps reached the prominence you think they deserve yet? Yeah, there are. I, I mean, I don't want to name a couple of them because I know I will uh, leave uh, some out. So I, I may leave you hanging there and, and maybe that will get me an invite back on your show later this summer when I hope we can announce uh, some additional projects with a couple of those artists. But th there are there are uh, a handful of um, of the next generation that we have engaged with and uh, look forward to uh, inter introducing uh, to some of some of our guests uh, later this summer. It's very easy to talk about Bandon and, and Sand Valley and Rodeo Dunes in terms of a love story, but this is ultimately not a love story with golf. It's a business at heart. How has the golf business been over the last few years, particularly as you're coming out of the pandemic? It's, it's been outstanding. I would start, though, by saying for us, it really is a love story. And a, another thing we've learned from our father is if it is a love story, then the business falls into place, right? Start with a project that, that stirs your soul, and then the business should uh, turn out uh, well. We don't start with you know the spreadsheets and the performance. We start with 
a love story. And this is certainly a site uh, where I experience love at first sight. Uh, but the pandemic has, has caused, I think, Americans to appreciate their time, you know, outdoors, in nature, in community with their friends and their family. And that has resulted in a, a, a boom for golf, uh, certainly within our destination golf resorts. But from what I understand at local munis and at local clubs, uh, golf is booming. And with all the great projects coming online, I don't know that golf has ever been in, in a a better place than it is right now. Well, Michael, there's a lot of excitement about Rodeo Dunes. Thanks for joining us on this Monday. We'll speak to you down the road. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Back on golf today, some news today from the U.S. Ryder Cup team. Jim Furyk has been named vice captain for Zach Johnson and the U.S. team in Rome. Amy, could probably just take his walkie-talkie from past President's Cups and Ryder Cups, but put some new batteries in, and he's good to go. They don't even have to change the decals on the carts anymore, Damon. And speaking of the Ryder Cup, in case you missed it, Adrian Moronk made a big statement over the weekend, winning the DS Automobiles Italian Open at this year's Ryder Cup venue, Marco Simone Golf and Country Club, near Rome. The 29-year-old from Poland was the only player in the field to shoot under par all four days, and on Sunday, he fired a 69 to beat France's Roman Langasque by a single shot. Mm. Get the job done. His third national open win, by the way. European Ryder Cup captain Luke Donald putting this out on Twitter. Superb win for Adrian Moronk. Solid golf played all week and came up with the right shots when he needed them most, starting to make winning a habit. Well done, Adrian. So let's take a look at the European Ryder Cup team qualification. Three players qualifying from the European points list. Three more from the World Points List qualification began at the BMW PGA last September. Qualifying concludes on Sunday, September 3rd. Luke Donald will make six captains selections. The 44th Ryder Cup to be held at Marco Simone Golf Club end of September. Into October, U.S. hasn't won on foreign soil since 1993. Anything that happened over the weekend change your opinion on what might happen in the fall? I think the reports of the demise of European Ryder Cup team are greatly exaggerated. Mm. This is not a team that's actually going to be weak. And even th those past results over the last few years at this venue, Marco Simone, Bob McIntyre has been a winner on this golf course. Nikolai Highgard, also a winner on this golf course. Both of those guys are on the cusp of, of being in this Ryder Cup conversation for Luke Donald and certainly Adrian Moronk. He's guaranteed to make that team. Now, it's his third win, second on the season. He, he's going to be a factor there, and it has to count for more with a captain when guys are showing that they can perform well on the Ryder Cup venue. It was the same thing in Le Golf National in Paris in 2018 when former winners on that course made the team were captain's picks because they had proven themselves. And if you look at the where these guys now lie in the European qualification standings, they come off two different lists. There's a world points list and a European points list. And John Ram obviously topping both with Roy McIlroy right behind him. Yannick Paul there, number three on the European points list. Something of an unknown. He performed well in a couple of DP World Tour events that were held in Asia. The rest of these guys are known quantities. And there are other names that you would expect to play their way into the mix on this, guys like Shane Lowry, for example. So the, the great European teams of 15, 20, 25 years ago typically had four, maybe five lesser known figures on the team. I don't think this is going to be out of whack with that at all. And the guys at the top, 
they are literally at the top of the golf world. They are. If the Europeans aren't weakened enough for the Americans to find a way to get the job done at long last, you know, 30 years in between wins, I don't know when they're ever going to get done. Look at the American squad and the potential. And, and like Luke Donald, Zach Johnson will have six captain's picks at his disposal. Look at the top six. Scheffler, Homa, Young, Spieth, Burns, Cantlay. And then you got Morikawa if you want. Will Zaltoris if he's healthy. Justin Thomas if you'd like. Tony Finau, where he be now. I mean, we're talking about not just great players, but young players of a certain vintage without the scar tissue that we've seen in the last 30 years on the road. If it doesn't get done now, listen, you can say what you want about these unknown Europeans. When Rick Pitino was the coach of the Celtics and they were struggling, he said Larry Bird's not walking through that door. Kevin McHale's not walking through that door. You know, Sergio's not walking through that door. You know, That's Jose Maria Oliveira's not walking game. through that door. Though you're, you're expecting that Adrian Moronk and Yannick Paul are going to put fear into Scotty Scheffler? Well, those guys would be actually welcome in the locker room, which gives them one up over Sergio Garcia when mm. it comes to this European Ryder Cup team. There's plenty of scar tissue on that American team there. There's scar tissue in the locker room on that American team from defeats over the years. So 30 years between victories overseas, that's a long time. And a lot of that comes down to familiarity with the venue. You look at all these venues that Europe has held Ryder Cups in over the years, all the way back to the K Club yep. in 2006 and Celtic Manor in 2010, the Golf National, Glen Eagles. These have all been familiar venues for DP World Tour events for years, decades in some case, before the Ryder Cup ever got there. And last week, we didn't see any Americans who were in the frame for that a Ryder Cup me. discussion. That would concern you. There was an a de designated event here, obviously. Sure. It's a scheduling thing as well. But it will be interesting to see if, for instance, in the run-up to the Open Championship, if Zach Johnson gets some of those guys to roam on a scouting mission for the golf course. Because, you know, as Tim Barter was on our show last week from Rome, Sky Sports, and he pointed out that Justin Thomas was the only member of the American team who went and played that French Open at Le Golf National in 2018, and he was the only one who was unbeaten on the American team that year. Tom Lehman took uh, the Americans on a scouting trip ahead of that 06 Ryder Cup at the K Club. Didn't work out. Then you just have to, this is, this is to me, one of the great, you know, winning streaks if you're a European, losing streaks if you're an American, to me, in sports. You know, and it's become this kind of home-and-home home thing. The Americans finding a way to get it done uh, in Wisconsin at Hazeltine, but not able to find a way. I just feel like with all of the static with the GMAC, Lee Westwood, Poulter, Sergio. If not now, I, I don't know when you're going to get the job done with the firepower that the Americans have. Well, you think Johnny Harris, who owns Quail Hollow, who was here last week, you think he would like a Ryder Cup there under the argument, do you want these guys to be familiar mm. with the venue, that they're going to see it every year? Lack of familiarity, I think, yeah. is a big issue. The underdog, overdog status is yeah. also a big issue. And doesn't matter who's on the European team and who's not, they're always going to be considered the underdog, and they're going to be happy to play that up. Marco Simone in that DP World Tour DNA, just as the Golf National was as well. Well, coming up next today on Golf Today, Matt Cahill has a golfer's dream job as the head pro at famed Seminole Golf Club down in Juneau Beach. He also just punched his ticket to Oak Hill in the PGA Championship. So Matt will join us next as he prepares for a major championship. Stay tuned.
Back on golf today, Pennsylvania Club Pro Braden Shaddock capped off his PGA Professional Championship debut by making the 12-foot par putt in the final hole for a 270 and a one-shot win that sends him and 19 others to the PGA Championship at Oak Hill. So 20 in total on their way. Wyatt Worthington II among them. Also not listed, Greg Koch back for another PGA Championship. Works out of the Ritz-Carlton Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida. He also played at Kiowa a couple years ago. Matt Cahill will also be headed to Oak Hill. He succeeded the legendary Bob Ford as the PGA head professional at famed Seminole Golf Club in 2021. Matt started as an assistant pro at Seminole in December of 2013 and also worked summers at famed locations including Oakmont, Catanzan, and Shinnecock. And great to have Matt with us on this Monday. First of all, what are you most proud of in playing in your first major championship coming up next week? Well, it's pretty much a dream come true. Uh, you, you work your whole life to maybe have this opportunity and to see it kind of come to uh, a realistic and uh, to actually be happening. It's, it's pretty un unbelievable. Matt, you work at a club at Seminole where competitiveness is valued. Your predecessor, Bob Ford, played in multiple major championships. Is that something you were conscious of when you went into this qualifier? It's definitely been in the back of my mind the last couple of years and uh, the history at this club with the professionals being uh, competitive in majors, not just making majors, but being competitive. Uh, definitely something that I wanted to check off my list and uh, it's just pretty cool to get it done and, and to have that opportunity. Matt, golf is so popular these days, whether it's private golf courses or public golf courses. Everybody wants to get out and play. How do you balance the playing with the teaching? Well, uh, you know, I try to take care of business here first, uh, but you have to be pretty good with your time management. So you come in, uh, you make sure everything at the club is running the way you want it to run. And there's a lot of uh, little half-hour windows where you might be able to get some putts in, uh, hit some chip shots, hit some balls, and then... I'm pretty fortunate here. I get to play with the members quite a bit, and uh, that kind of keeps the game uh, at least sharp enough that you can compete when you have to. You had a number of scholarship offers when you went to college, Matt, but you chose Florida State because of its PGA management program. Why did you prioritize that over playing competitive team golf? Well, growing up, I always had a job at a golf course, and I really uh, enjoyed getting to the golf course early in the morning and being around the golf business. And when you had a chance to uh, have a career in golf versus just playing golf, uh, you know, I, I really felt like it was a no brainer for me. And the fact that uh, every day I can come to the golf course and, and be part of day-to-day uh, -day operations in golf, uh, it's just it really, it's a, I'm living a dream every day. Matt, you're the ninth head professional, I want to say, in the 94-year history at Seminole following Bob Ford. What was the best piece of advice he gave you when he kind of turned out the lights and you turned them back on? Uh, Bob, uh, he, he was incredible. Uh, had some really good mentors, but uh, Bob just said, you know, be yourself, make sure you take care of the members, take care of their guests, give them. Uh, he always talked about an extraordinary experience, and if you do that, it, you, you'll be great every day that you're a professional. By virtue of the fact that you're the professional at Seminole, you spend a lot more time around elite players and world-class players in this game than perhaps any other guy who qualified for the PGA Championship next week, Matt. Does that lack of intimidation value count for something when you go to Oak Hill? I think it's big time. Uh, we have the pro member here every February, March, uh, which is 
some of the top players in the world come and play and get to spend some time with them. So at least it might be a little less shock when I'm on that range tee hitting balls next to some of the best players in the world and uh, having a small relationship with some of those uh, professionals, I, I think it would just kind of make me feel a little bit more relaxed when I get there. And Matt, you've played some of the toughest golf courses in the country anyway, Oakmont, Seminole. What are you going to be working on with your game ahead of the PGA Championship? Well, I, I got a great teaching pro, uh, Jimmy Tyrone. He's the teaching professional at Catansit and Jupiter Island. And uh, Jimmy keeps it simple. Um, let's hit it solid, hit it in the fairway, uh, be smart, uh, hit some shots in the center of the greens. And, you know, I, I'm pretty blessed. I got a good short game, chip, chip it close, make those putts, and uh, see what happens. I'm guessing you don't have the kind of membership that's eager to volunteer to carry your bag for you next week anyway, Matt. <laughs> but what are your expectations when you get to Oak Hill? Well, I, I just want to have a fun week, uh, just do the best I can. I got my family coming up with me, uh, which means the world. So uh, just try to enjoy every minute of it, try to play as best I can and, and kind of see what happens. But uh, just want to really try to take it all in uh, for the week that I'm up there. Matt, for the viewers watching at home, some of them are, are kind of digging out of winter and getting their, their first rounds of the year under their belt. The value of a playing lesson, which it sounds like is something you do versus watching a player on the range. Why is maybe there more value in a playing lesson? Well, there, there's some great range players uh, in golf, but uh, when you actually get on the golf course and the conditions kind of change, and it's a great way to be able to see somebody in, in, the, in the element and see what happens when the pressure's on and when every shot kind of matters. So I, I would say you learn a lot more about somebody on the golf course than you will on the range tee, and uh, you can really give them good feedback of, of what they need to be trying to work on. What was your experience like, Matt, when you were playing the South Florida PGA section on the junior tour? And in what way did that contribute to you actually being the player you are with the career you have now? Well, I was pretty lucky. I played a lot of golf as a junior golfer and uh, uh, competing as a young kid. It's, it's really that's why you practice. That's why you try to uh, work so hard at it and to have the pressure on you to try to hit the shot when it matters. And so I've been competing since I was 11 or 12 years old and, you know, just try to take those experiences and make a few of those putts when it really, when the pressure's on. You mentioned the pro member that's at Seminole every year. You run into pretty much every prominent player in the game. Have you reached out to any in the hopes of playing a practice round at Oak Hill before you get there? I've had a couple interactions. Uh, you know, Shane Lowry was kind enough. He sent me a text uh, as soon as I finished up and just said, congratulations, hope we can get some golf in. And uh, a few others have reached out too. So I'm not going to put any pressure on them to play, but uh, we'll see if I could stake in nine holes here and there and try to pick their brains and, and learn from them because they've been there, done that. So uh, I, could, I could tap into some of their experience for sure. Well, if you want to play with a high handicap, I'm available. Eamon's available as well, but probably better off playing with the likes of a Shane Lowry. Have fun, Matt. We appreciate the time. Uh, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it, and uh, thanks for everything. Well, there were thousands of shots struck in golf this weekend, 95 of them by the man to my right. But none of his made our list of the best of the week. The nine <laughs> coming up next. True story. Back on Golf Today, time now for stories to feel good about. Canada's Stephen Ames on Sunday shot a four under 68 to win the Mitsubishi Electric Classic by four. This is a long birdie putt at 17. 
I tell you, when Stephen get hot, and this is the guy who won the Players' Championship in 06, the, the hole would look like a bucket. This now for birdie at 18. It's got to look like a bucket when you start rolling these in, Damon. How about it? Second of the season, fourth on the senior circuit, and the wire-to-wire -wire victory is made even more special, Amy, because his son was on the back. And it was a decisive victory here at the Mitsubishi event. You see a five-stroke win, sorry, four-stroke win for Ames over Miguel Angel Jimenez, Brett Quigley in the mixer as well, along with Steve Stricker, Bernhard Langer, and Ernie Els. And afterwards, Stephen Ames talked about solving that caddy problem. You found out Sunday night you needed a caddy this week. Got on the phone, called your son Ryan, said, come on down. What's it like having your son this week on the bag for such a week that you've had? Um, obviously exciting. Um, I think the overall, the whole aspect of the week was for him to learn a lot because um, he's trying to play now professionally himself. So we, uh, we were actually, with, it was kind of nice actually, different for me because I was going through each shot and what my thoughts were and stuff like that and the things that we, he needed to work on and stuff like that. So I think this week overall, I think the fact that I ended up winning as well kind of uh, adds icing on the cake. You mentioned in your interview yesterday that you have found a way to be quiet and calm over the ball. Can you expound a little bit? What impact that had on your play this week? Um, a lot. It's something I've been working with my psychologist uh, since 04. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's only now kind of kind of rub it in. But uh, I think overall it's just um, realizing how important the, the mindset is and how, the, how, how important the focus part of it is when I'm playing golf. And I tend to be very technical in my golf swing. And uh, I've, in the last year and a half, I've let that go quite a bit. And uh, funny enough, in letting that go, my swing has actually gotten better because I've gotten quieter mentally. And uh, so, so I think overall the, the golf swing is good enough to win out here. It's obviously, for the way I played this week was an, exact, an example of it. But the fact that I was uh, extremely quiet and very calm playing the whole week was even more extraordinary for me. And meanwhile, on the LPGA Tour, it was Team Thailand who took home the title at the Hanwha Life Plus International Crown. The team charged to a dominant victory over Australia as they swept all three finals matches to emerge victorious for the first time in the history of the competition, winning just 10 total matches in their first three appearances at the International Crown. Thailand went 11 for 12 in the 2023 edition of the event, led by MVP award winner Arya Jutanagarn who chipped in on the final hole to solidify the victory for her country. And UCLA's own Patty Tavitanik had put the week in perspective with Paige McKenzie. Speak about this Thai team. I uh, saw everybody celebrating yesterday after the win. Uh, you seemed a bit emotional. What has this team meant to you? Um, it, it means so much, and for us to come all the way this far it's so great for our country and like you can already see there's a lot of rookies this year from from thailand um and like you know this is gonna keep making it growing and keep inspiring young people i'm just so proud of all of us to be able to play and give it all we got um and just try to make you know our home country proud Stay with us with Countdown, the nine best shots from the week after this break. Maybe see a couple from TPC Harding Park. That's coming up next. Back on Golf Today, this from the Twitter handle, Wells Fargo. Wyndham Clark checking out his new champion's locker at Quail Hollow. Win number one on the PGA Tour. Job well done. Here's the best from Wyndham on Sunday.
I think in the past I sometimes shied away maybe from those pressure moments because I would get too amped up. Um, that's one of the hardest things in golf is you have all these emotions and you're so excited out there and you have to then have touch and hit something with such, you know, so much toss, or touch and pace. And, um, and so in the past, I feel like I struggled with that. And so today, like you said, I was excited. I was, when he made putts, I was like, yeah, all right, now I got to do it. And, um, you know, I just think Xander and I fed off each other really well Saturday and Sunday. Um, you know, he played amazing. And I think a lot of how good I played was because he was putting pressure on me. And so I just felt like, I, all right, I can't just coast in and make a bunch of pars. I got to make birdies. So, um, yeah, I really like how I handled pressure. To be honest, when I lost in, um, in, where were we, in the Dominican this year, um, I was beginning to think that maybe I'll never win. I know that sounds crazy because I've only been on here five years, but I've had a lot of chances to where I was within two or three shots, um, either going into the back nine or starting on a Sunday. And I always seem to fall short. And not only that, but seem like I fell back in positions. And there was multiple texts and calls and times when I was so frustrated with people in my camp where I didn't think I'd ever win. And I was like, let's just stop talking about it because I don't want to, uh, I didn't want to think about it. I said, maybe that's just not in the cards for me. Um, so being in the position this time, I was like, well, you know, we, we've done everything. We know what not to do. And so um, I really learned from those experiences. And I felt like today, um, you know, when I didn't have the best start early on, I just told myself to relax. It's I have a lot more holes. You can't win the tournament after the first few holes and on a Sunday. So, you know, little things where in the past I would have gotten fast and quick and, and already my mind's going forward. And, um, and so I stayed really patient and present. And I think that's what kind of calmed me down. And then ultimately, when I got into a groove, um, helped me propel to make the birdies and, and win this tournament. My mom passed away when I was 19. And um, I'd say when I was about 20, 21, I really contemplated quitting golf. I was at Oklahoma State, and I was playing terribly. There was many times when I stormed off the golf course um, in qualifying or in tournaments and just drove as fast as I could and I didn't know where I was going and um, you know and I just just the pressure of golf and then not having my mom there and someone that I could call was really tough for me um, and then professionally I've, I've had multiple moments like that where you just you you know you miss multiple cuts in the row or you feel like your game is good and you're not getting much out of it and you just contemplate doing it so um, you know Max Homa has a great quote of every good every golfer's one shot away from thinking they can win the Masters or one shot away from quitting golf. And it really is a great quote because that's the truth. And um, I'm, I'm glad I stuck, stuck out and, and I'm here now, so. Four shot win for Wyndham Clark, 19 under. Shot 63, by the way, on Saturday. Hit 17 of 18 greens and just ran away from Xander and everybody late Sunday afternoon. Some news today from the PGA Tour, starting with this year's seniors in the class of 2023. The top five players in the final PGA Tour University ranking will receive additional performance benefits that extend through the 2024 season, the PGA Tour announced Monday. The Tour Policy Board approved changes that will annually provide an 18-month runway in professional golf 
for the top collegians. Now, in addition to earning PGA Tour membership for the 2023 season, the number one player in the final PGA Tour University ranking will earn PGA Tour membership in 2024 and will be subject to reshuffles as well. For the remainder of 2023 and through 2024, players finishing numbers two through five will have no limit to the number of PGA Tour events he plays as a non-member and no limit to the number of sponsors exemptions he receives. For juniors, sophomores, and freshmen who earn PGA Tour membership via PGA Tour University Accelerated, in addition to earning PGA Tour membership upon the conclusion of the college golf season, they will also earn PGA Tour membership for the following season and will be subject to reshuffles. Time now for the nine, the nine best shots from the past week. Ryan Armour, first round of the Wells Fargo, par four first. This from 80 feet, that constitutes being downtown, Damon. Downtown, from way downtown, bang. And here at number eight, Darren Clark. In the first round of the Mitsubishi Electric Classic from 310 yards. Who says only flat bellies have <laughs> distance these days, Damon? i tell you what, he's kind of gone like James Bond. He, you know, he looks smooth and he gives the cigar and then he kind of can play well. You know, a little heavy set also. And that's... Ernie Ailes on the green here, reading his putt as he watches this ball trickle in. Ernie's not a guy you want to get on the wrong side of, Darren. A couple guys who won the Claire Jug. I think Ernie's still away, though. <laughs> oh, they hugged it out. It's all good. No harm, no foul. Had a good laugh. Number seven, Adam Shank, first round of the Wells Fargo. This from the bunker at uh, 18. His third for birdie. Helps the putting stats. I hold out for a birdie in my round of 95. I actually sculled it, but it had a little zip on it, and it still ended up in the bottom of the cup. Lilia Vu, number six. The fact that you would even mention that to the American people is distressing. <laughs> this from 171 yards, Damon. You didn't do that, though. I did not, but from one new slave Bruin to another. Well done for the major champ. Lilia Vu, number five. Harris English, Georgia Bulldog, first round of the Wells Fargo. Coming back from injury. And this is the kind of thing that would really make you feel better. Takes a little while as it works its way there from 75 feet for birdie. I mean, the greens, I mean, seven is a huge green, but the greens in general, that Quill Hollow, giant in general. Number four, Romain Longasque, final round of the Italian Open par 317. Chipped in for birdie. Ultimately finished one back of Adrian Moronk. Love the reaction. Wee oui, wee. Oui. Number three, Area Jutanagar, finals of the Hanwalt Life Plus International Crown, par 415. Tips that in for the victory, four and three. Hardest part of the game. Matt Kale talking about how good his short game is. Uh, a little bit jealous. And area obviously has a fine short game as well. Adam Svensson, final round of the Wells Fargo. This is number two on our list. That's par five first. It's a pretty nice way to start your day. Oh, how about it? Holes out for birdie. And then number one, Mark Hubbard. Second round of the Wells Fargo, par three seventeenth. And normally when we show you a shot like this on a par three, mm. you kind of know what you're going to get. Well, you know we're making ace on this. This is tough to come on. This whole par three is brutally difficult. Oh, Mark Mother Hubbard. Oh, yes. High five, back slaps. All around. That was the nine. How cool to chat with 
Michael Kaiser, what's coming to the Rocky Mountain State? It really is. I mean, as much trauma as this game has inflicted mm. on me over the years, Damon, every night when I try to go to sleep, I'm playing a abandoned course in my head, and our buddy out there, Mike Chupka, is trying to lure me back, but he hasn't quite got me over that hurdle yet. You know why? That's why I asked about the lodging. I want the steak dinner and a Cabernet Sauvignon as well. To soothe your pain? <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. Enjoy your Monday. Enjoy the golf in Birmingham.